Well, well if you where? draw a straight line from the Declaration of Independence to the preamble, where it says promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And I think it comes out in folks like Ginsburg, as you mentioned, you see this push towards a more relativistic uh, morality, whether it's uh, the Bible or the Constitution, relative uh, moralists are going to hate the written word. Welcome to another episode of the AppCast. I'm your host, Wes, joined as always, or mostly, by my partner in crime, Alex. What's up, Alex? Hey, fam! <laughs> How you been, bro? I'm good, man. I'm good. A little cold Sunday. Skipping church, uh, skipping my Jesus meeting to go dive in some really cold water, but I'm here really? now. I don't see that in Hebrews, forsake not the assembly of the saints unless there are diving weights that need to be gathered. Yeah, well, tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, you know, I had to give you a little bit of grief. It was, it was either go Sunday or wait till mid-February to take the class. And I was like, ah. Uh, uh, who needs Bible study? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nobody. Well, how'd it go? I got since, since you did it, I got to ask how, how it went. I mean, it went really well. Uh, I was cold on the second dive. The water tip was 59 degrees at 60 feet. Oh. And I was in a dry suit with two base layers and no true thick thermal layer. So about halfway through the second dive, I got a little cool. So I'm going to have to get a thicker uh, fleece layer. For them cold water dives because I'm planning on diving in water a lot colder than 59 degrees. Yeah, man. So you you mentioned a dry suit. Yes. Yeah, so, I took a dry suit class. So so what's the difference between a dry suit and a wetsuit? One's dry, one's wet. You're in the water <laughs> in both. <laughs> so in a dry suit, uh, there's several different materials, and I won't get into the nerdy details of the difference there. But the dry suit is a water tight suit right uh it has seals around the neck and the wrist some suits have an integrated hood those are usually for contaminated environments true commercial divers diving in like sewage to work on a pipe uh where if they dive in a normal dry suit for recreational and technical diving they would be far too exposed to things that could kill them bacteria and infectious diseases and stuff like that uh the yeah. type of suit i dove has silicone seals on the neck and the wrist and you can add either dry or wet gloves to the wrists and wear a neoprene hood like a wetsuit hood to keep your head warm but from the neck and wrists in towards the core and down the rest of your body it is a sealed container that keeps the rest of your body dry so a wetsuit uses a layer of water that the suit traps against your body. Your body heats up the water, and then that water keeps you warm. 
in a dry suit, you inflate it like you do your buoyancy compensator, and the air pocket inside the suit keeps you warm. That plus the thermal insulation you're wearing, right? Okay. I didn't have enough thermal insulation on under the suit, so I got cold on my second dive. So you need to eat some more polar bear meat. Yeah. Get some, get some blubber. Yeah. I'm not quite fat enough for my body to keep itself warm, so <laughs> I got to wear some extra fleece layers. All right. Well, before we get into today's topic, a couple of uh, things we want to make sure our listeners are aware of. First, definitely catch us on Facebook at APT Podcast. Uh, it's facebook.com slash APT Podcast. Give us a like there. Share our episodes as they come out. And also a shout out to our new likes for the week. Billy Lawler, Lolo Edwards, Nathaniel Schmidt, Deborah Minor King, and Nick Tyler. So thank you guys for the love there. Hey, uh, Billy. Yeah, Billy I keep... Lawler's demand. I, I keep... Hey, Billy from church. Yeah, I keep looking for somebody who's not a, a friend of either of ours to like the page. But so far... It's just people who like us for some reason. Ah, <laughs> poor people. I pity them. Yeah. So now that we've got that taken care of, uh, it seems that recently there have been two big developments in the news. First, we have uh, the week of the Women's March last weekend, followed by the March for Life later on this week with the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. But also we've got some demonstrations, some protests, if you will, in Virginia around uh, the Second Amendment. Is that right? Oh, yeah. All kinds of constitutional things coming up in the last week. And interesting that, um, if I'm not mistaken, the March for Life is also in Raleigh. I think so. That sounds right. I can look that up while we're talking. Well, you have the governor of Virginia, at least for the Second Amendment issue, his connection to both of these topics. This is the same governor that advocated for uh, having the conversation about whether or not to kill a child after the child has been born and laid on the table. Oh, dude, he's there have been so <laughs> many bills come up. I don't I hadn't paid enough attention to it. I probably should have before the podcast. Since that's one of the primary topics. But there have been half a dozen bills come up that are just so statist and tyrannical government. It's it's appalling that the Democrats are supporting it because they're anti-gun, right? They're pro-abortion, pro-choice, supposedly, and anti-gun to the point where they're ignoring this dude is pulling the same tyrannical stepping stone process to totalitarian government that every whether it's left-wing or right-wing totalitarian government, every one of them over the last 150 years has started out as, right? Right. Germany in, enacted selective gun control in the 30s to separate political dissidents and Jews from the ability to defend themselves. And the, the left-wing argue against that point with that he actually encouraged gun ownership by good Germans – you know, totally ignoring the fact that he did actually take guns away from through gun registration and confiscation, mm -hmm. people who were potential opponents to the government. And you see the same thing happening here, but we'll get into that in more detail. It's just mind boggling to me how much certain demographics 
are either sticking their head in the sand and ignoring it or outright supporting what this government in Virginia is doing right now. Yeah. I digress. Continue. Outline. Well, no, I, I think that's pretty much the outline. It's those two primary issues and what is at least apparently uh, some form of an attack on the Second Amendment. But then also you have these uh, different views on the unborn, right? You've got the the, the Women's right. March, which is declining in popularity and attendance over the last several years. I saw something that showed this past weekend's attendance was a tenth of what it was just a few years ago. And uh, you have uh, coming up the Women's March, which is growing in popularity. And studies are showing that when you actually look at uh, where the average American believes that abortion should be legal, that timeline is moving further and further back. I mean, the heartbeat bills over the last year have done wonders in the social consciousness of uh, the average American to say, well, you know what? It's not just if it's viable. It's not just if it can feel pain. Now we're at the a stage of, well, it's got a heartbeat. So it's a person. Now, for, for those of, those of our, our listeners and, and folks like me who are abolitionists, and, and I would presume you to be in that group as well, we would love to see abortion Absolutely. ended completely. At the same time, we should rejoice to see that this line is getting pushed back further and further. And the, the pro-abortion, the, the pro-death groups are really having to, to face up to the application of what they believe. Absolutely. And, you know, the, it, it's an interesting dichotomy that's painted in our political environment. The pro-abortion, and I'm not going to call them pro-choice because it's pro-abortion. You know, yeah. the, you can play the pedantics of. Well, I don't actually support abortion. I just support a person's right to make the decision for themselves. Well, if you're not opposing murder, you know that there really is only two choices there. I, I hate mm -hmm. false dichotomies, but you, you're really not just supporting a person's right to choose. You are by not actively opposing murder, you are supporting it. Right. Well, you're permitting somebody else to commit murder. Exactly. And that is support. Whether you want to play yep. the game of you're supporting their right to choose to murder or you're actively defending their murder, you're supporting it, right? It's, just it's not it's not pro-choice. Right. It's semantics. So going back to my original point, they, they do actually have some validity in their argument that once a child is born, they are neglected by the system. But the argument taken from that point is so absurd on several points. One, that murder is better for that child than growing up in a bad environment, growing up abused, growing up mm -hmm. jumping from home to home. In and of itself, that's absurd, right? I, I don't even need to, to go into that in any more detail because it's not begging the question that death and no life at all is better than a hard life, right? You, mm -hmm. you can't argue that. That, that, that. That's an opinion. There's, there's no facts right. to support that death is better than even the most miserable bad life. 
you, you have no evidence, you have no proof that that child would have made no difference in the world, would have had no quality of life whatsoever, would have made no impact on the lives of other people. That it, it's a stupid argument. Sorry, I, I, I don't like to call <laughs> things stupid, but it is just a stupid argument to well, claim. Well, it boils down to, uh, ultimately, you're saying if, if the kid's going to be born into a family that's stricken with poverty, okay, right. so it's better to be dead than poor. It's or, better to be dead than starve, better to be dead than have uh, diseases parent. and stuff your whole life, better to be dead than have a single parent that hates you. It, no, it it may be a hard life, but you have no idea the impact that person could have on other people or what that person could be responsible for. You could have the mm -hmm. next Einstein. You could have the next Mozart. How many of the 40 plus million babies have we killed in the last 40 years who could have been that genius that would have changed the world. And, and not just that, uh, I, I would take it back another step and, and say that, and, and I think you would agree with this too, that fundamentally it's a human life. What right does anybody else have, any individual have to snuff out the life of a human being? Yeah, and we'll get into that in more detail. I'm just <laughs> taking their arguments and reducing them to the absurd. Right. So sure. The, well, if you're going to do that, let's talk about how abortion is healthcare. Oh my <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Oh well, there's the possibility that the mother would die or that the fetus is not viable. Really? Oh my gosh. So women do die during pregnancy. Women do die from complications during childbirth. But in the United States. Absent a pre-existing condition in the mother mm -hmm. where that's possible, whether she wants the baby or not, that is so rare in the United States that it's a stupid argument. Okay, again, mm -hmm. with the stupid. The, the maternal – I forget what the technical term is. The mortality rate of women during pregnancy and women in childbirth. Right. is large outside the United States because of the lack of proper health care, the proper nutrition, and things of that nature, not because of complications that require the death of the unborn baby. So again, the facts of the matter belie the validity of the argument in as much as the argument is based on statistics that they don't even understand. Right. So there's one scenario where I wholeheartedly agree with ending a pregnancy, and that is an ectopic pregnancy, where the fetus attaches to the fallopian tube and not inside the uterus. Okay, right. In today's scientific world, in today's medicine, we cannot detach that fetus from the incorrect location and successfully reattach it in a uterus. Okay, we do right. not have we the can't transplant that. Exactly, we cannot yeah. transplant it from an incorrect <laughs> mounting location to a correct <laughs> mounting location. Okay, well said. That that baby is going to die. There is a one hundred percent chance that baby is going to die. If that pregnancy is not ended, there is I don't think it's one hundred percent, but I, there is a very large percent if it is not naturally miscarried it will kill the mother okay yeah so that scenario that baby is already technically medically doomed dead okay there is no chance that baby's going to survive so 
when we're talking about triage, triage, just like any other scenario, you, you, you're picking the most likely to survive. Okay. You have a mass casualty event. You have 20 people going to the hospital. You have somebody with a traumatic brain injury who's going to require 16 hours of surgery to get stable enough to where they could survive as a vegetable. Okay. You can use those same 16 hours in surgery to save three other people who will actually have a life after the event. All right. Someone with such traumatic brain injury that they, their autonomic functions could continue, but have no higher brain function, have no chance of regaining higher brain function. It, it is a triage decision to determine to let that person die while you save three or four other people. Okay. That's, right. that's what I consider the ectopic pregnancy decision to be triaging between the mother and child in a scenario where the baby has 0% chance of survival. Well, and let's be so, honest too, that the vast majority of pro-lifers, let's just put them all in one big bucket. The vast majority of them supports the potential for abortion in the circumstance where there's a threat to the life of a mother, not the health, because right. that can be expanded to emotional health and depression and, you know, Absolutely. get into all of those uh, twistings there. But if the life of the mother is at stake, even from a libertarian uh, position, you've got one individual causing harm to another individual. And so in this case, you've got the baby, which is an individual that's very likely high percentage causing life-threatening harm to the mother. Yes. So even even in pure liberal um, libertarian terms, you have justification for ending the life because it's threatening another. Absolutely. So there, there's two things going on there. One is the medical threat. Right. And the other is the castle doctrine threat, right? Stand your ground, defend yourself. The castle doctrine threat, the way every way I've ever seen it argued, I reject wholeheartedly. That that child is not actively, intentionally invading another person's space. That person chose sure. to have sex, get pregnant, and deal with the consequences right. of it, right? The, right? There is there is no validity to a castle doctrine defense for taking the life of a child. It, it's uh, not a parasite. It's not an external organism. Absolutely. And we've discussed that in our past episode, so I won't rehash yeah. that extensively. The medical attack. So for cases like the mother has cancer and it's either let the cancer eat her up for three months while she takes the baby to term and take the chance, depending on the type of cancer, of the child getting cancer and then both dying or have treatment, which would cause the termination of the baby. Right. Mm -hmm. So things like that are legitimate medical triage decisions that I would not fault a woman for making. You know, right. if if she's determined to have that baby, by all means, let her have it. If she is going to die because it's an aggressive cancer, they have to treat it with chemo or radiation that will damage or kill the baby. Have the treatment if that's if that's your goal in life, you know. Hopefully they pray and get God's guidance in the issue right. before making the decision. But if they don't, it, it's still a valid medical decision, right? Quality of life. You were talking about mental health. That's a trash argument to kill a baby, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so Because of unforeseen the, mental circumstances. Right. It, it, that, that, that's not going to cause or prohibit the survival of the parent. Uh, there may R be – Real quick. Real yep. quick, just to interject for our for our listeners, my mother had me at 19, 
And as a result of having me did not finish college. And my wife and I had our first child before I finished college and I, at 20 and I still finished college. So that the young argument doesn't hold water with me on an experiential level besides all of the other arguments that we're talking about. So just, just so our listeners know kind of where I'm coming from on that. Please continue. Yep. So uh, rape and incest and other medical related issues like Down syndrome. Is it Iceland or Greenland? Iceland. It's Iceland. Iceland. Okay. So Iceland has practically abolished the existence of Down syndrome in their By population. killing everybody who has Down syndrome. <laughs> right. By forcibly killing everyone who has Down syndrome in utero. So or, or, they or haven't. Who they possibly have it. Or the test is, po- isn't even conclusive. So fun fact, Will, my oldest son, who's now 11, had multiple soft markers for Down syndrome. He had the shadow on his heart that is one of the main soft indicators early in early pregnancy for the potential of having Down syndrome. And there were two other two or three other things. I forget what they are now that based on that shadow on his heart, the other two or three were statistically soft markers if that existed. Right. So Mm -hmm. if if the shadow on the heart existed, the others were soft markers without the shadow. The others were irrelevant. Uh, So he had two or three soft markers for Down syndrome. He's a perfectly normal child. Well, exactly. If you can call my child normal, he's (laughs) any child of yours. (laughs) Right. Uh, uh, He's he's witty. He's a genius. He's already challenging. Yeah, he's already challenging my ability to keep up with him, both both mentally and athletically. So normal is a relative statement, but he's not a Down syndrome child. Right. Right. He's not special needs disability. So there and I don't know technically if their law would have required us to consider abortion or would have required us to abort or just kept up with it in detail until it was determined he was not down syndrome during the pregnancy but it's scary that a law could have potentially forced us to abort a perfectly normal child very healthy yeah i I think the way the um the law works in iceland is that it requires the testing but not the action so there's certainly the option available and it's certainly endorsed by I think it's fair to say the majority of healthcare quote unquote providers in Iceland, but it's the test that's required. And then from there, some 96, 98% who have the test and see those markers that you're talking about wind up aborting. And then they go, Hey, we've eliminated down syndrome. Right. Pat on the back. So fun fact, uh, those invasive tests are actually dangerous to the mother and child because Our OBGYN, my wife's OBGYN, asked us if we wanted to have that test. And we were like, what would be the point? She just bluntly told us it's a good thing to know if the child is going to be so that you can determine whether you want to abort. And we were like, well, there's 0.0% chance we're going to abort. (laughs) So we're not having the test, the invasive test that could be harmful to the parent and the child. So, you know, even even that is concerning because I'm sure as often as they do it, it's less harmful 
to the mother and child, the healthy mother and healthy child, yeah, than would be in a scenario where, like in the U.S., it's it's elective as opposed to re- required. But even so, how many children are miscarried because of that invasive test? Yeah. So it, it gets down to the point where at what point do eugenics <laughs> uh, get called out as being what's going on? The, the, you mean the source of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger? Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> don't, don't, don't talk facts like that. We don't do. We don't deal in facts. We deal in strictly opinion here, right? This is. Oh, US. you mean like the the majority of Planned Parenthood facilities in minority communities? <laughs> those kinds oh, of facts. Oh my gosh! Yes, facts like those. Those, those are irrelevant yeah. to the world we live in. Um, the argument of medical necessity is valid. The argument of rape, incest, quality of life. There, there was a woman who was praised all over the internet for having aborted her child because the child would have only had a few hours to a few days to live. You know, at that point, the people who aren't obsessively pro-life, even people who are obsessively pro-life, could see some validity in easing the pain of everyone involved. But it, it's still murder, right? You killed a child who had no chance of life past a few days, very little chance of life past a handful of hours to ease their suffering, right? Where's the end to the slippery slope there? How long, how long and how good a quality of life do they need to have before that's not okay? All right. At both ends of the lifespan to begin the life, how long of a life do they need to have before that's not okay? At the end of life, how much quality of life does an old person need to have before it's okay to end their life in suffering forcibly or electively? It's playing God. Mm -hmm. And I see no validity to the argument, even from a humanistic perspective, if what we're going to get into in a minute is – the way you consider right to life. So constitutionally speaking, and that's the, that's the goal in today's podcast is talking about these things, both from an objective morals versus a moral relativism perspective and from a constitutional perspective, constitutionally speaking, would we agree that the constitution unequivocally states people have a right to life? Unequivocally? Mm, no, but implicitly, absolutely. So we would not say that the Constitution – I'm not talking about the amendments. I'm talking about overall the point of the Constitution is that people have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? That is the de- Declaration of Independence, and I would say that that explicitly identifies a right to life and – by extension, the Constitution coming off of the heels of the de- uh, Declaration in that same intellectual milieu, that cultural uh, society that produced the Declaration of Independence, definitely there's a connection there. But uh, Right. So building, building on what you just said, yes, yep. that, that statement is in the Declaration of Independence, but in the preamble to the Constitution, in the articles – that 
manage the function of the federal government in the relation between the federal government and the state governments and we the people. And then in the first 10 amendments and then building on that with the 14th amendment, uh, would you not agree that considering that the constitution was not written in a vacuum, it was written on the heels of the declaration of independence. It is explicit in the document that the federal government does not have an arbitrary right to determine life or death, right? They, they, oh, have, a legal, they have a legal right through the court system to end life based on crime. They do not have a right to determine life or death with either pre-existing laws, like abortion laws, mm-hmm. uh, laws that would replicate uh, Nazi Germany, Russia under the Communist Party, China under the Communist Party, where political dissonance can be destroyed as if they were non-humans. So 1984-type, unhuman, uh, unperson-type scenario. Well, uh, well, if you draw a straight line from the Declaration of Independence to the preamble, where it says, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, I think there you see the line being developed, but there are plenty who would point to like a a Supreme Court decision like Roe v. Wade that would say they held that abortion is a constitutional right. And so since there's not explicit language in the Constitution, there's at least room for dialogue there, I I think. So I would disagree because there are many court cases – that set precedent where people read the constitution as a living document or mm-hmm. as Ruth Bader Ginsburg says herself, she does not primarily take the constitution as her basis. She looks at international law and the leanings of the current state of society. You know, what is acceptable within society, what international courts say, which is more based on what is acceptable in society than any written document like our constitution. I would disagree that any court case is, can be much less should be the basis for what is constitutional. The court has overstepped its bounds with constitutional authority, just like the Congress has giving up their authority to the executive branch. And just like the executive has, doing things that are unconstitutional, which we talked about a little bit in the past. I would say all three branches of government have mutilated constitutional authority. So anything the court says is not in and of itself valid justification of what's constitutional. Right. Oh, I I wholeheartedly agree. And and I think it comes out in folks like Ginsburg. As you mentioned, you see this push towards a more relativistic uh, morality whether it's uh, the Bible or the Constitution, relative uh, moralists are going to hate the written word because it, it's an anchor by definition. Yep. And, and so that's why you have theological liberals who are going to say, well, the Bible doesn't say what it really says. Same thing with the Constitution as a living document. Well, the Constitution said this, but we can, we can read between the lines, the penumbras of the text. Uh, I believe is the uh, 
the, the statement that or the the verbiage that was used in Roe v. Wade. It was kind of reading between the lines of the text rather than actually looking at the text of the Constitution itself. Yep. So looking at the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, Point 1 in Section 2 has been replaced in the 11th Amendment or modified. Point 2 and Point 3 is trial by jury for crimes, for impeachment, etc. Okay. Mm -hmm. So going on to the 11th Amendment specifically, judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state, by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. So mm -hmm. it, it, it gives the country, the, the federal government, uh, immunity mm -hmm. to suit by states, citizens, or foreign states and their citizens. Now, going back to the amendments, search and seizure, trial and punishment, the Sixth Amendment, right to a speedy trial, uh, Seventh Amendment, trial by jury, eight, cruel and unusual punishment. I think those in totality, plus the Fourteenth Amendment, giving all individuals rights, and the Fourteenth Amendment starts to become where the pro-abortion crowd has inroads to a valid constitutional argument. Mm -hmm. If you did, if you dismiss the argument of the first 10 and the articles relative to the, the authority of the <laughs> judicial. So setting aside the 14th amendment based argument that shows citizens of the United States are citizens upon birth and have equal rights regardless of their race, sex, creed, or any other demographic upon birth. Putting that aside, the first 10 amendments and the authority of the judicial in the articles set up a very thorough precedent for the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of the individual. Okay. It gives very strict limitations on what the government can do and how they are authorized to do it to punish a person from the default state of right to life, liberty, in pursuit of happiness. Okay, I, I would say it rather explicitly states the government does not have authority to arbitrarily murder someone. I'm, so I'm with you there. From from that, I get to my argument on constitutionality of or lack of constitutionality of the pro-abortion crowd okay is is right to life inalienable an inalienable right okay it either is or it is not all right mm -hmm. whether it's explicitly stated right to life is an inalienable right in the constitution is irrelevant okay the constitution limits the government it doesn't give us rights it, li it limits the governments so right you either believe the right to life is an inalienable right or you believe it is not. You believe it is a privilege given to people by whatever you deem to be the authority. I believe right to life is an inalienable right. I believe there is a very strong and pretty irrefutable argument that the Constitution reinforces that based on how the Constitution limits the government in its ability to limit life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So starting at that point, 
life is a inalienable right and inalienable right or it is not you have to look at the science of the growth of the genetically unique human okay at the moment of conception even before that fetus that zygote attaches to the uterine wall mm-hmm. at the moment of conception when that dna from the father and the mother combines into a single strand of dna that is a unique human being a genetically unique human life form whether you want to call it a person for your argument or not is a wholly different point at the moment of conception it is genetically unique human being you can argue that it is unviable until it is attached to the uterine wall and feeding off its mother you can argue it's unviable until it is able to breathe from its own lungs able to have its own heart pump blood through its body, you cannot argue it is not a unique human life. The viability is an irrelevant argument if it is a unique human life and that human life has the right to life as a member of the human species. If it is a privilege, so be it. That is your argument. It it is not that it's a choice. It is not that it's inviable. It's not a triage decision based on mental health or anything like that. It is that you accept that that human being, genetically unique member of the human species, does not have a right to life because it is not a person. Because you believe that the 14th Amendment that gives everyone equal rights is based on personhood. Now, here's the caveat. If it's personhood that determines whether a human being has a quote-unquote right to life, there is no such thing as a right. It is all government-dictated or society-dictated. It is all privilege. Well, that gets back into what we've talked about before is what is the authority? Right. Who says that's a person? Exactly. And it's it, wh- whether you want to say it is written into law or it is just someone stating it, it's still arbitrary if someone is determining from a variable perspective whether that entity has a quote-unquote right. All right, It's not a right. It is a privilege. If you have to infer it on something, it is not an innate right. It is a privilege given to something. So spreading this out just a little more, going diving into a little more detail. A lot of the pro-abortion argument is that prior to being born, a preborn baby, a prenatal baby, we're not going to call it a fetus because that that dehumanizes it. The right. baby does not have rights as a citizen of the United States, according to the 14th Amendment, because that is based on born persons. Okay, The definition from a – and this is a valid point – the definition of a constitutionally defined person – is a born human being. If a born human being has the basic rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, we are defining what a human is, okay? Mm-hmm. Separate from science, in fact. We are subjectively determining what gives a human being personhood and therefore what gives them the quote-unquote right we're instilling upon them right? right it is not innate inalienable 
if it has to be given. So what can change there, right? Can society choose to make a certain group, a demographic like the Jews or African-Americans or Japanese-Americans not be people, not be people constitutionally? Technically, that is a valid argument. It could be made possible through the court system that made Roe v. Wade a valid argument. So either we have an objective point, an objective source for what is life, what gives it the right to stay and be alive, or we have subjective opinions. From that perspective, anything that can remotely be determined to be a subjective ending of one life to increase the quality of another life besides necessary medical triage is absolutely antithetical to constitutional rights for me. I'm, uh, I'm rape and incest. You're, you're creating another victim in the process of trying yeah. to give an already created victim closure or comfort, right? The, the, the mother of that yet to be born child has been made a victim by whomever raped her or whichever family member impregnated her through incest. Okay. And that child also is a victim, is a byproduct of that crime. And is, it is a victim. Yeah. Also. So, so let's, we're, we're coming up to the end. I think we may have bit off a little more than we could chew trying to get uh, both of these. Wow. We have been this in both. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we'll get to the, the gun thing next week, but, um, kind of bringing it to a more practical uh, situation with this being an election year. So l- let me put two separate ideas uh, to you and, and ask you how you work through them. On the one hand, you have the Democrat Party who has enshrined in its national platform a right to abortion that is not safe, legal, and rare, as has been said in years past, but just safe and legal. And advocates for judicial nominees who explicitly will uphold this right and will tear down any boundaries to abortion for a woman. Uh, So you've got the Democrats on on the one side with that enshrined in their platform. On the other side, you have Republicans who say they're pro-life, but then you have their actions, uh, such as whether at the federal level passing budgets that still fund organizations like Planned Parenthood or at the state level governors, like we've had Republican governors for the last two decades in Alabama. And it's taken until this past year before Kay Ivey even remotely supported legislation that would uh, end abortion or recognize the personhood of the unborn before a heartbeat would come out. So, so how do you navigate that as, as a voter? What can our listeners take from that when you have the Democrats who are adamantly pro-abortion and the Republicans who are tacitly pro-abortion? Yeah. So if, if you are of the pro-life position, whether you are Christian or not, and you support a politician who is not pro-life, whether explicitly like Warren Sanders, the uh, governor of Virginia, others who would have abortion be legal 
and readily available up to the moment of birth, or yep. you believe it to be only for earlier first trimester prior to a heartbeat, whatever, whether it's explicit like they believe or it's implicit in that you approve funding for organizations who are founded on and get the lion's share of their profit from abortion, you are not actively supporting the pro-life that you claim to stand for, the, the, no. the pro-life position you claim to stand for. No. So that that is part of the reason I completely left the Republican Party. Uh, I will vote for people in either party for positions where they are not responsible for budgets and funding related to subjects like this. So, for example, the Public Service Commission in 2018, I voted for a Democrat over the Republican because the Republican was just your typical patsy for special interests yep. who was going to support the standing position in the Alabama power argument over alternative energy sources, whether it be yep. wind, solar, or any other type, several types of hydropower uh, in the state of Alabama with the number of rivers we have, it is primarily dams, but then you have waves and all that. So, you know, squirrel, I digress. I voted for the Democrat because she was very openly and objectively for increasing access, consumer access to alternative energy sources. And there, there is a valid argument based on how the state government controls the, the energy charges that Alabama Power charges customers for why they have the variable rate, the very high rate for alternative energy. But it's, it, you know, it's, it's chicken and egg thing. Alabama Power charges this because the state supervisory board has laws requiring them to cover power, you know, a, a must provide power requirement, whereas California can have rolling blackouts and shut down. So all that to say, I'm willing to support someone in any party if their policies align with what I believe, except for those core issues. I will not support anyone, no matter their party, if they explicitly or implicitly support abortion, if they explicitly or implicitly support eminent domain, uh, explicitly or implicitly support gun control, because the Second Amendment there is is there to protect all the other amendments and the unspoken amendments like the right to life. Uh, so there there are there are lines in the sand I will not cross, and. Since my awakening to the false dichotomy of the left versus right paradigm, that is one of the core issues that I just will not give ground on. If if a governor, if a politician is willing to support a bill that includes funding for agencies whose core purpose is to murder babies, murder the unborn, they're not really opposing it. They're not making a stand for the right to life. Okay, so we as Christians, especially, but even beyond that, those who believe in objective morals and are pro-life, who happen not to be Christians or happen not to be theists in general, you really have to question yourself whether it's worth voting for someone who opposes what you believe to be living beings having the right to continue living 
absent yeah. people intentionally murdering them. It, it gets ignored very easily in in the big scheme of the less the lesser of two evils. Well, at what point do you set your minimum requirement? You know, people yeah. people talk about not picking and choosing the hill to die on. Defending the right of the unborn to live is a hill to die on 100% of the time. I, I think it's necessary for people who are pro-life, whether you're Christian or not, to take a step back and look at how important that particular policy position is for, for the people you're willing to support politically. I think that's well said. Uh, I, I lean on a similar side, uh, probably a little more concisely stated. Uh, Without uh, protecting of human life, how can you expect government to protect any human rights? Just bottom line. I mean, you really can't. Yeah. You know, Nazi Germany, uh, communist Russia, Mao's China, left and right extremes, perfect examples of the validity of life doesn't matter. And every other quote unquote right is marginalized for the public good and or for the state yeah and we're quickly getting there in this country yep well i think uh we've got a nice place to land we've had some good conversation on that you know we didn't have time to get to the second amendment today but uh oh, next week, i hate that because oh, no, they tie in so well together they do they do and and we can talk about the interaction between those tomorrow those will be good uh Maybe, maybe we put out two podcasts this week. Oh, oh, maybe we will see. But in the meantime, as the music starts to play, uh, I would like just to, to read from Ephesians 6. Peace to the brothers and sisters with love and with faith. From God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the AppCast. We'll see you next time.